Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 47. Last week, I wrapped up in the period shortly after the Persians had forcefully taken over Egypt. At that time, the Persian king Darius had died, and he was succeeded by Xerxes I. And before getting started, a quick note about these histories. For the past many episodes, really the last several dozen, I have been progressing through the history of Egypt, as recorded mostly by Egyptians. And as time wore on, their record-keeping, combined with the survivability of those records, has led to a relatively comprehensive understanding of the events. Of course, this ebbed and flowed with established dynasties and periods, and was minimized during intermediate periods. To a very large degree, it has spoiled us. When compared to their contemporary cultures, such as the Persians, we know a great deal about the Egyptians, and far less about the Persians, to the point that much of Persian history is gathered from outside sources, like the Greeks. And almost by definition, the history is less reliable, as it's not first, and in many cases not even second, but is from a third-person perspective. Nonetheless, that's where we find ourselves in this episode. So, there are many gaps awaiting archaeologists and historians to fill in. Of course, I can only cover what is known. And with that lengthy disclaimer and introduction aside, let's get started. In 486 BC, when Darius was preparing for another war against the Greek city-states, events in Egypt distracted him. The distraction was actually a revolt thought to have been motivated by heavy taxes, but the Persians were also subjugating and deporting Egyptian skilled laborers to Persia. These craftsmen were being sent through the desert to what is now Iran to build royal palaces, along with other monuments. Remember back to the last episode when the Egyptian pharaoh Amasis forcefully sent an Egyptian ophthalmologist to Persia? This was a very similar situation and didn't sit well with the Egyptian populace. At the same time, there was also an uprising at Babylon. So, quite quickly, Darius was facing potential trouble on three fronts, and this, obviously, was stressful to the 64-year-old ruler. But he would press forward with his Greek invasion plans. Prior to his scheduled departure to Greece, Darius had his tomb prepared. According to Persian law, the king was required to choose a successor before setting out on military expeditions. The obvious choice was his oldest son, from his wife who was the daughter of Cyrus the Great. And the chosen one was Xerxes, and he was quickly appointed as crown prince. But Xerxes was not Darius's absolutely oldest son. His older stepbrother was Artabazan, who was now feeling a little left out. Artabazan's mother was a commoner, not the daughter of the king that led Persia to its freedom. There's much more to this, but that will have to wait until the deeper dive into the Persians. Fate would have different plans for him. Before setting out for either Greece or Egypt, his health rapidly declined, no doubt a decline accelerated by the stress, and he would die in October 486 BC. Xerxes I immediately succeeded his father as king, and their ruler wasn't a mere king, owing to the vastness of the empire, 
he was known as the King of Kings. And that's the earliest mention of that phrase I have run across. So, possibly the source of the phrase, and certainly not its last mention. He was part of the Persian Achaemenid dynasty, explaining why you will sometimes see that name used in place of Persia. Once again, square meets rectangle. And the name Achaemenid simply means he was a descendant of Achaemenes. And this is the place where I'd normally have a minute or so tangent about this character known as Achaemenes. But we don't really know. In fact, we don't even know if he really existed or was a mere myth. If he did exist, it was probably sometime between the years 705 and 675 BC, which reinforces the point I made a couple of minutes ago. Most cultures from this era did not stick to their record keeping like the Egyptians did. And that's how the Egyptians spoiled us. We have much more information on what happened in Egyptian society 1,000 years earlier than we do about the Persians. The history of the Persians is a real dearth. Either way, the dynasty ruling Persia at the time is sometimes called by Khemenes name. Also, if he did exist, he may have been the ruler of Parshamash, which was an ancient tribal kingdom in what is today northwestern Iran. It was also a vassal state of the Median Empire. While a vassal leader, Achaemenes may have led armies against the Assyrian king Sennacherib around 681 BC. There's a little bit more, but that's enough for now. Just know that this legendary figure is the source of the Persian Empire's alternate name. Back to Xerxes. Like his grandfather Cyrus, Xerxes' name is sometimes followed by the suffix the Great which means I'll have a decent amount to cover. But most of that will wait until I get to the Persians proper, as this episode will focus primarily on their influence over the Egyptians, along with some of their mentions in the Old Testament. The latter may be redundant with a future episode. So be it. Very soon after taking the throne, Xerxes put down both the Egyptian and Babylonian rebellions. In Egypt, he would appoint his brother, Achaemenes, as the satrap. I'll get to him in a few minutes. Xerxes took a different, potentially more extreme approach in Babylon, to the point that he melted their idols. And this move only stoked the natives more, but they remained under Persian control. Overall, it was during his rule that the area controlled by Persia would reach its zenith. None of that is what he's most remembered for. Thinking back to the last episode, Remember that Darius, before he died, had sent his army to Greece, where they were defeated at the Battle of Marathon. He then set about preparing his forces, both the army and the navy, for a revenge mission. And this wasn't some haphazard expedition, it was years in the making. A canal was dug through an isthmus at Mount Athos in Greece. The canal itself was only about a mile, or 1.6 kilometers long, and, despite its relatively short length, it took nearly three years to complete. Also, supplies were pre-positioned, two pontoon bridges were built, and he recruited soldiers, soldiers from everywhere in his empire. The army was populated by Assyrians, Phoenicians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Macedonians, European Thracians, Paeonese, Achaean Greeks, Ionians, 
Aegean Islanders, Aeolians, Greeks from Pontus, and Colchians. If you don't know any of these, or all of these, and some are minor and disappeared in history, don't worry. I'll get to them eventually, too. And there's another group that was part of his army, the Hebrews, which initially sounds surprising, but their land was occupied by the Persians, and many were exiled and subjugated. So, to be clear, embedded in all the groups fighting the Greeks were the descendants of Moses. In the spring of 480 BC, Xerxes sailed from Anatolia. According to Herodotus, the combined army and navy had about 1 million troops, led by another 10,000 elite warriors. These ancient special forces were known as the Persian Immortals. Now, the million number might be a little inflated, as more recent estimates based on ongoing research consider 60,000 troops to be more reasonable. Either way, whether 1 million or 60,000 or somewhere in between, it was this force that would face and defeat the legendary Spartan 300, and then move on. When the Persian military finally got to Greece, with Xerxes in the lead, not every city-state was alarmed. Many of the smaller Greek states sided with the Persians, most notably Thessaly, Thebes, and Argos. The Persians were victorious during the initial battles. Xerxes would continue onward to a victory at Thermopylae, and even capture Athens, which sounds more impressive than perhaps it really was, as most of the Athenians had abandoned the city and fled to the island of Salami before Xerxes arrived. A small number of the locals did remain, but like the Spartan 300, they too were defeated. Xerxes would burn the city, leaving behind evidence that has been uncovered by archaeologists. He would gain territory northward, just past Corinth, essentially all of the Greek mainland. Then he made a mistake. His navy attacked the Greek navy when he was advised not to. Maybe hubris got the better of him. The Greeks won the battle and forced the Persians into a winter encampment at Thessaly, but Xerxes knew he was vulnerable. Thinking the Greeks could attack and destroy vital bridges and leave him trapped in Europe, he retreated back to Anatolia, with most of his army in tow. He did leave a smaller force in Greece, but they would be defeated the next year, and with that, he was done in Greece. The defeat of his navy and potential entrapment of his military wasn't the only factor in his decision to retreat. The Babylonians were rebelling, again. But that problem was easily quelled. With his blood-slash-revenge-lust finally fulfilled, or perhaps learning from defeat, Xerxes would focus his attention on domestic affairs, buildings, monuments, palaces, and even roads. Like other Persian leaders, Xerxes was mentioned in the Old Testament, in his case, it was in the book of Esther. Well, to be clear, the text names the Persian king Ahasuerus. In modern biblical, as well as Persian researchers, identify this king as Xerxes. Why? Well, let me get to the text, but do recall that Xerxes ruled the kingdom when it was at its greatest size. Chapter 1 of Esther reads, This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Pausing for a second, Ethiopia, in this case, is not what we think of today. 
The footnote refers to Cush, unpausing. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present. While he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So, a party that lasted six months and occurred in his third year, perhaps just before his departure for Greece. Xerxes would be assassinated in August of 465 BC by the captain of his bodyguards, a man known as Artabanus. And keep in mind that this role was really high ranking in that society to the point that many consider it the highest official in the royal court. So much for that job. Apparently, Xerxes was murdered while sleeping, and since it was night and no one witnessed it, well, other than the victim and the perpetrator, there was a bit of uncertainty as to who was responsible. More on the ramifications of that in a second. There was some palace intrigue around this, at least according to Greek historians, Xerxes' crown prince, Darius, was accused of the murder by Artabanus. Then, Artabanus convinced another of Xerxes' sons, Artaxerxes, to avenge his father's death by killing Darius. But not even the Greeks agreed on this. According to Aristotle, Artabanus first killed Darius and then killed Xerxes. Then Artaxerxes discovered the murders and proceeded to kill Artabanus, along with his sons. Whoever did it, in the end, both the king and the crown prince were dead, along with a high-ranking official, which typically sets up a crown crisis. But at the last minute, a general, who seems to have been initially in on the plan with the bodyguard, switched sides and allied with the freshly minted heir apparent, Artaxerxes. And by doing so, control of the throne remained in the Achaemenid dynasty. Obviously, there is much more to Xerxes' rule, such as the role of Magi, possibly similar to the three Magi, but that will have to wait for a future episode. And normally at this point, I would move on to Xerxes' successor, but I did mention his brother, Achaemenes, whom he appointed as the Egyptian satrap. In a minute or two on him will be time well spent. Prior to Achaemenes, the Egyptian satrap was a relatively unknown figure named Firandates. The little that is known about him suggests he was killed during an Egyptian uprising sometime around 485 BC. This was the same revolt that hastened Darius's death. So, Darius dies, Xerxes assumes the throne, and appoints his brother Achaemenes as the new satrap, consolidating power and removing a potential rival for the throne at the same time. Smart move. Achaemenes was one of Darius's many sons, and likely the full brother of the now-ruling Xerxes. He was appointed to the Egyptian position sometime between 486 and 484 BC. When he arrived in the ancient kingdom, a self-proclaimed pharaoh, Samanicius IV, held a very loose control over the region. Next to nothing is known about Samanicius. Sometime after his arrival, but maybe as long as two years later, the record is nowhere close to clear. Anyway, 
Up to two years later, the revolt was extinguished. With victory, Achaemenes established a more repressive domestic policy, hoping to discourage future rebellions. But, similar to what the Persians experienced at the same time in Babylon, the long-term effect was quite different. More on that in a minute. When the Persian military, led by Xerxes, departed for the revenge war against the Greeks, Achaemenes would leave Egypt and lead the Egyptian naval fleet. These ships would be part of the engagement at Salamis in 480 BC. This pivotal battle saw the outnumbered Greeks decisively defeat the vastly more powerful Persians and their allies. The historical accounts of the battle are immense enough that they will likely consume a whole episode when I cover the Persians. The important point for now is to know that Achaemenes survived the defeat and returned to Egypt to resume his duties at Satrap. Twenty years later, he was still there and in the same role, when there was another internal revolt, this one led by a native prince named Inneros. Achaemenes and Inneros would fight at the Battle of Paprimus in 459 BC. It was here that Achaemenes would be killed, and his body returned by the Egyptians to his brother and king Xerxes in a manner meant to send a message to the foreign ruler. And that revolting native prince is more formally known as Inneros II, as the first iteration of that name lived in Egypt some 200 years before. Inneros' father was named Samtik, which causes researchers to believe that both father and son may have been part of the site royal family. Backing up a bit, prior to leading the revolt, Inneros held a kingship over the Libyans in a portion of the Nile Delta around Sais. Inneros would seize control of the northern marshes and drive out the Persian tax collectors and mercenaries, and thus begin the insurrection. Of course, given the recent conflict between the Persians and Greeks, many Greeks were itching for a little revenge of their own. So the Athenian Greeks sent about 200 ships to the aid of the native Egyptians. The Egyptians and their allies with these ships, and an unspecified number of troops, would meet the Persians in battle. And this was no small time affair. The Persians sent, at least according to the few records we have, some 400,000 troops and 80 ships. But, like what was seen in the Persian-Greek wars, these numbers are not completely reliable. In the ensuing battle, the Persians would lose their leader along with 25%, so up to 100,000 troops dying in the conflict, suffering a resounding defeat. And on the high seas, 40 Greek ships fought 50 Persian vessels. Of the Persian 50, 30 were sunk and 20 were captured another Persian loss. After the Battle of Paprimus, the Persians retreated to Memphis, which the Egyptians and Greeks then lay siege to, a siege that lasted two years. And you would think after being held up in the city for that long, the loss of the Persians would be a foregone conclusion. And you would be wrong. The Persians would send their legendary general Megabizus to free Memphis, of course, legends don't fail, and he made short work of it. The rebels retreated towards the delta, where there were a few less developed areas still in the rebels' control. Inaris was wounded in the thigh during the fighting. 
The rebels weren't quite done yet. They fought for another 18 months in the Delta Marshes, a ragtag group of Egyptians, Greeks, and possibly even Libyans. Defeat, though, would be their fate. In the end, Eneros was captured alive by the Persians. As you would expect, one of two intersecting fates awaited him. They would either immediately execute, or he would be imprisoned. The Persians chose the latter, with Megabizus promising Eneros, along with the rebelling Greeks, that they would be imprisoned, then exiled to Susa, but not executed upon their arrival in that Persian city. Megabizus, though, was merely a general, albeit legendary and powerful, but he was not a royal. The queen wanted to avenge the death of Satrap Achaemenes, who was her son. And before you try to connect the dots, she was called the queen, but it was her son who was the king. Today, in Great Britain as an example, she wouldn't be the queen, but would occupy a role closer to that of queen mother. Either way, she held a great deal of sway over the king and asked for Eneros to be executed. By this time, Persia was ruled by Artaxerxes, who I'll get to at the end of this episode. Artaxerxes, though, let Eneros live in prison for five years before giving in to his persistent mother. When he handed Eneros over, he also gave her 50 imprisoned Greeks. Now, we don't know exactly what she did with him. Well, them, as there are two competing theories. The first is that she had him crucified. The other is that he was impaled. The Greeks met similarly gruesome deaths. As for their crucifixion method, it's unclear if it was on a cross similar to what the Romans would use some 500 years later, or if it was on a single stake. Either way, the upstart Egyptian rebel fell. So, circling back a bit, during the Egyptian revolt, Persia was ruled by Artaxerxes. He would rule the Persian Empire from 465 to 424 BC. Like I covered a few minutes ago, Artaxerxes' ascension to the throne was rather abrupt. Both his father, the King Xerxes, and his older brother, the Crown Prince Darius, were murdered in quick succession. And, according to different accounts, Artaxerxes murdered someone to avenge the deaths, either his older brother or the captain of the royal bodyguards. He would continue the fight against Greece, but unlike his predecessors, this wasn't a hot conflict and took more of the tone of a cold war. He funded Greece's enemies, even offered refuge to Persia's former enemies so that they would not offer support to Greece, and engaged in small skirmishes. And this Cold War lasted for a while, until the Greeks and Persians met in battle, again, one last time. This time at Salamis and Cyprus, and this would mark the end of their hostilities with each other, culminating with the Peace of Chalias, the first peace treaty between a Greek city-state and Persia. Now, there's much more to Artaxerxes, such as his interactions with the Old Testament scribe Ezra. But that will have to wait, as I'm not really covering the Persians, but focusing on their impact on Egypt. Shortly before the Egyptian rebellion was quelled, the rebellion led by Eneros, the Persian general Megabizus appointed Arzames as Egyptian satrap. Remember, the satrap was essentially the Persian governor of the region. 
This new satrap would lead Persian troops to victory over Athenian Greek troops in the Delta. Once the rebellion was over, Arzamas took a different tact from his predecessors, essentially offering a conciliatory policy towards the native Egyptians, hoping to avoid future trouble. As a gesture of goodwill, he even allowed Inarosa's son to maintain his princely title, and therefore a certain level of control over part of the delta. This satrap would end up governing Egypt from about 454 to probably 406 BC, after which he disappeared from the historic record, probably meaning he died. Towards the end of his rule, there was one event worth covering. In 410 BC, a revolt erupted at Elephantine, and this one was not against the Persians, but was more of internal Egyptian strife. Living in the city was a large Jewish population that regularly sacrificed goats at their temple, but their temple was extremely close to the Egyptian temple of their ram-headed god, Konam, and the Egyptians took offense to the sacrificing of goats within sight of their goat god. A true irreconcilable difference. Then, when the satrap was away, the natives, with the aid of a local military commander, attacked and destroyed the Jewish temple. Upon his return, Arzames punished the perps, but also outlawed the sacrificing of goats. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up with Artaxerxes' successor, Xerxes II. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.